I think AI is real and it's here to stay. It will fundamentally change existing workflows. Now, the question is when. It's the time access that I think uh, is important to think about. But the fact that uh, these tools can be effective, you know, I think more or less a lot of people agree on, even the ones that tend to be skeptics. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Eddie Martucci, co-founder and CEO of Achille. In their own words, Achille Interactive is a leading digital therapeutics company combining scientific and clinical rigor with the ingenuity of the tech industry to reinvent medicine. Today, I speak with Sean Cozen. Sean is a board-certified oncologist and data scientist. As founder of Fusion and senior partner at the investment firm Braven, he focuses on advancing innovations at the intersection of biology, technology, and AI. Sean was previously the CEO of CancerLink, and the global head of data strategy and data science at Johnson & Johnson. He had a successful tenure in the U.S. federal government as the associate director of DA's Oncology Center of Excellence and the founding executive director of FDA Informed, a data science and technology incubator he established under special authorities from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. But before we dive in, I met Sean, must have been about 15 years ago, in New York City. And while we kept up with each other's journeys over social media, we did not reconnect until now for this podcast. I saw Sean's post on LinkedIn about his reflections leaving the Alliance of Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare Gathering. And given his extensive background, I immediately wanted to get his perspective on AI and healthcare. What's real, what's hype, and what's to come. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean. Sean, welcome to the DTX podcast. Pleasure to have you here. And we were just kind of reminiscing how long we haven't seen each other, which I think has been like almost 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. And I saw one of your LinkedIn posts, which we'll talk about later. And I was like, I gotta have Sean on. It's been too long, so welcome. And for our audience, please give us a little bit about your background and one small interesting fact about yourself, or a big one. Well, Eugenie, it's uh, great to see you again virtually, and it's been too long for sure, over a decade, as you said. And it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. So I'm a physician scientist and a data scientist, and my career has been essentially focused on the intersection of what nowadays we call AI, although back then we didn't call it AI, it was under the umbrella of advanced analytics, biology and also technology. So my career trajectory has focused on that area of overlap, which has taken me in very interesting directions professionally. An interesting factoid about me, um, I uh, started out as a composer and musician while I was also learning the inner workings of programming and computer science and computer languages. And uh, I came very close to having a professional career in music versus going to med school. Yeah, I could have had a very different life had I chose the other path. Well, the beautiful part is for the listeners and the ones that are not seeing the video, 
There's beautiful musical instruments behind Sean, so it sounds like you're still enjoying that part of your brain as well. In your introduction, you kind of were very modest about it. As you mentioned, data science, broader academic and science, physician, oncology is involved. You spent time at FDA. You've been kind of incubating companies. You now join Braven, which is a new fund. So very broad innovation horizon. And for our listeners, this will be a little bit of the atypical episode because while we focus mostly on digital therapies, I wanted to get Sean on because part of it is, again, what's now the buzzword of AI, Sean's been living and breathing a lot of this through the healthcare ecosystem. So why don't we maybe start with Braven? I think as you guys are building this out, a little bit of what it is, what it's about, what the thesis is, and how does that tie to the you know, healthcare innovation? Braven is a new uh, venture firm that we're building, which focuses on system unit innovations, which are essentially innovations that require coordinating and aligning the incentives of multiple stakeholders. And our initial focus is on finance, insurance, and healthcare and the life sciences. And these are areas where having one company and supporting one company alone can only go so far. And our focus is on incubating and supporting minimally viable ecosystems of companies that can make a difference in areas that are of interest to us. And these tend to be sectors that are also highly regulated. And that legal regulatory component is also part of the skill set that we bring to the table. And specifically for the healthcare, again, I know a lot of this has to be rooted in science and research. So are you leaning towards more life sciences, biology, data, tech, your background in AI, all of the combined? So maybe just kind of dive one level deeper on Braven's healthcare thesis. Absolutely. We're currently not focusing on therapeutics and supporting essentially drug development, but it's everything else that includes uh, the tools of the trade, tools that can enhance drug discovery or clinical development in helping advance research and development goals, but also the various elements that are involved in bringing these tools to the market, including thinking about novel financing mechanisms uh, for paying for expensive drugs, such as gene and cell therapies, and also other healthcare delivery solutions where the risk is not scientific and the risk is mostly commercial. I appreciate that background for our listeners as well. Let's dive in that LinkedIn post that you did a number of weeks ago as you were leaving the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare, and you seemed very enthused, excited. It was a pretty long post. I read every word of it, and that's when I decided I got to have Sean on here. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about the Alliance of Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare, what its goals, principles, how broad does it go, et cetera. So the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare is a nonprofit organization where I have been serving as a founding member. I was on the board as an executive committee member until recently. 
where we had our first face-to-face annual meeting. And the post that I wrote was on the flight back. And it was a very dynamic meeting, which inspired everyone. And on the flight back, kind of felt like I had a lot to say. So the organization is focused on advancing uh, ethical and responsible use of AI tools and technologies in healthcare. It's an organization that is essentially run by members. Uh, and the membership uh, includes companies, technology companies that are working on AI solutions, either in drug development and discovery or, or healthcare delivery, but also academic groups and other related uh, organizations that are focused on AI in healthcare. And the organization essentially represents that voice and develops consensus on themes that tend to be controversial, for example, bias in algorithms. And also there are a lot of uh, regulatory insights that we're able to surface through uh, the working groups and member meetings that we have. And we extract those insights and develop white papers and other types of uh, publications for broader dissemination. And the goal with delivering those insights to the community is to develop consensus around questions that are yet to be answered so that collectively we can move the needle on responsible and ethical development of AI tools in healthcare. We all believe that the organization and all the member companies are highly motivated, needless to say, by the promise of AI in fundamentally changing how we develop drugs and how we treat patients today. But obviously that profound transformation brings a lot of technical and also ethical challenges that need to be addressed pre-competitively and holistically. And AIH represents that neutral zone and safe sandbox. I wish I was able to be a fly on the wall at least, if not there, just to kind of listen in, especially in this age when everybody's talking about chat GPT and AI taking over and all the hype cycles around it. It's real. It's here. And what are some of the big questions in that room, right? And especially, I love your comment around it has to be responsible and ethical because especially we're dealing with our human health and lives. The big questions in the room, what were you guys debating, solving for? These are the questions that a lot of folks in the AI field have. So I think first and foremost, it's identifying opportunities that the member companies can address in a substantial way. And by opportunities, I mean opportunities that can move the needle in these really challenging spaces that we have in drug discovery, development, and healthcare delivery. And once that space of opportunity is defined, obviously these companies all have their own priorities and areas of expertise. But I think collectively, looking at the opportunity landscape, it gives everyone a a different perspective. And one of the features of that is that in some cases in healthcare and drug development, but especially when you're talking about developing and advancing AI solutions, you cannot clap with one hand. You You need collaborations and new ways of working together and sharing uh, knowledge and IP. So a lot of discussions that we have as part of the organization have to do with thinking about these new collaborative schemas where expertise and technological innovations can be brought together to address these areas of uh, opportunity, which speak to unmet needs and challenges that we have. 
across drug discovery, development, and healthcare delivery. That's what we think about. But the devil, as they always say, is in the details. And those details can be quite technical at times. You, know, you mentioned ChatGPT. I think one of the things that ChatGPT has done, I believe, uh, is demystified what it is like to be engaging and interacting with a machine. So it's that human-machine interface and interaction has now gone mainstream. Well, we, you know, we're in the early days of that, and some of the lessons that we're learning from that engagement and interaction can be translated into how patients interact with machines as part of accessing care, and also how scientists and drug developers engage with machines in discovering drugs, but also advancing them through the clinical development process, but also across the regulatory threshold for approval. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Sean Cozen, founder of Fusion and a senior partner at the investment firm Braven. One of the interesting things you said in your post, and I love how you compared it, but I would love for the listeners to understand your mind a little bit. You compared it, the rapid evolution of AI to the marvel of aviation. And we've heard some comparisons before, like airline industry and healthcare, but this was kind of, I think, unique a little bit on the evolution and the marvel of aviation. Give us a little more of your thinking there. Sure, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I've always been fond of aviation uh, before my wife declared a moratorium on my <laughs> aviation aspirations for good reasons. You have to be flying a lot to be able to do it safely. But there are um, a lot of parallels when it comes to how the aviation industry has been able to advance innovation in a way that it has been quite rapid, relatively speaking, but also extremely safe. I think we hear this a lot, you know, flying, statistically speaking, is much safer than, than driving nowadays. So those ethos speak to a culture that is focused on safety without compromising innovation. And I think in healthcare, we look at innovation and safety in binary terms sometimes, but there is an appropriate balance that can be struck where you advance innovation while maintaining optimal safety standards. And I think the aviation industry has done that remarkably well. If you think about where commercial uh, aviation is today, where we have CAT3 planes that use sensors and other automated tools to land a passenger plane of 200 plus passengers, you know, high risk venture safely without human intervention in zero visibility, you know, that speaks to a culture that has been very forward thinking, hasn't compromised safety, but has really progressed in terms of leveraging the latest innovations in software development, hardware development and engineering in an integrated fashion. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned there. And it's amazing that we have been able to successfully do that in aviation, yet deployment of electronic health records globally and in the United States has been associated with a number of mistakes that probably in retrospect could have been done very differently. So and I think there are a couple of unique features to the aviation industry. There is a culture of safety, and which is very much weaved into the technological innovations that have been introduced in, in the sector over the past few decades. 
But also there is a culture of collaboration and data sharing. And we can also learn in healthcare from what the aviation industry has done in terms of uh, sharing safety data and uh, a lot of information pre-competitively, knowing that in order to maintain standards that can be applied globally across the entire ecosystem to advance the safety goals, there needs to be a pre-competitive space that everyone commits to and shares data in that space. So I think that has been a driving force in the aviation industry that we can learn from in healthcare. You've been around the space for many years. And again, we're, I would say, approaching probably, if not there already, at the top of the hype cycle. Let's maybe try to demystify a little bit of what's real today across the value chain, some use cases that are real, and maybe some of them that are overhyped potentially at the CDS level or even at the digital therapeutics level. I would love to hear your thoughts on what's real today, what's not. There's a lot of hype always around new tools and technologies. I think AI is real and it's here to stay. It will fundamentally change existing workflows. Now, the question is when. It's the time access that I think uh, is important to think about. But the fact that uh, these tools can be effective, you know, I think more or less a lot of people agree on, even the ones that tend to be skeptics. So... The way I think about this domain is as follows, and it's a place that we've actually been before if we're thinking about healthcare and drug development. If we think about how we did things in late 1800s, medicine was not as fragmented as it is today. I think that fragmentation has helped us develop specialized expertise and uh, advance knowledge in, for example, fields of oncology, cardiology, nephrology. So there's been this sort of fragmentation over the years. I myself, you know, I'm an oncologist, but I had to even go beyond that. I was uh, academically oriented. So I'm a thoracic oncologist. You know, I, my focus is on essentially what happens above the diaphragm and below the chin. So that is specialized expertise, but also it's also fragmentation. In the late 1800s, medicine and engineering were very much intertwined. And we didn't have this chasm that we have today between technology, engineering, and medicine. And we got quick wins. You know, if I told you today that I have developed a biosensor that develops the electrical activity of your heart, and I'm going to use that biosensor to make life and death diagnoses, you would probably call me a little too optimistic, if not crazy. Well, that was the electrocardiogram. We did have a biosensor that we developed in the 1800s. We didn't have too many workshops and too many meetings around what to do with this technology. We started to incorporate that into how we deliver care and into the existing processes of healthcare. Why? Because medicine and engineering were very much intertwined. And then x-rays are another example of that, where after the discovery of x-rays, it very much found its way into routine practice. Obviously, we took that a little far. We Shoe stores used to <laughs> use x-rays to fit shoes. Uh, so there are some lessons also to be learned there, and it's good to have you know, safety standards. But that also speaks to the fact that medicine and engineering were much closer together. But we've separated that and subspecialized. In a way, now we're going back to the future, but there's a lot of learnings to be done there because folks that come from the medical field today 
they don't necessarily know what AI and digital therapeutics, for example, can solve necessarily. So they might incorporate these tools to address challenges that these tools are not designed to solve. So if you're thinking about that sort of traditional healthcare view today, and folks that are developing these tools and technologies may not necessarily know the sore spots that exist in drug development and healthcare because of that space that exists between healthcare and technology development. So I think what is happening today and what's supposed to happen in the past five years, we're going back to the future and medicine and engineering and data science are becoming intertwined again. And I think that's where we're going to see massive transformation where folks are bilingual, essentially. Folks really, truly understand the language of biomedicine, but also the language of technology and data science, including AI and machine learning. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hey, Sean, you've spent time at the FDA. How did the FDA think about regulating AI and what has changed since you left? That's a great question. It's a very nuanced and complex question. We can talk a couple of hours about that. So when I was at the FDA, we were thinking a lot about how to regulate AI in a manner that ensures safety and effectiveness of these tools, while at the same time, the regulations wouldn't necessarily pose a barrier to innovation. So that balance was very important to us in the early days of thinking about this domain. And we started to realize that these uh, tools, and I'm generalizing here to a certain extent, can essentially be thought of as diagnostics in a way that are not in vitro. And obviously, FDA has had a lot of experience with in vitro diagnostics, you know, proving, for example, targeted oncology therapies that are based on the genomic profile of the patient's tumor. So there has been a mechanism in place for validating these diagnostics. And that became essentially the foundation of thinking about how to regulate AI. And the technical definition of that is software as medical device. So this concept of software as medical device is really rooted in the experience that the FDA has had in the past couple of decades with approving in vitro diagnostic assays. And there are two main components there that are of regulatory significance before these tools, whether they are software as medical devices that are diagnostic tools or digital therapeutics, you know, essentially the same thing. So these two regulatory concepts are focused on validation, technical validation. Does a tool measure what it's supposed to measure accurately and consistently? And clinical validation is the endpoint that the tool measures clinically relevant. And that is now the standard that the FDA is building upon. There's a lot of room to go. And what we should all appreciate about FDA's approach here is that it's a collaborative mindset where FDA, for example, uh, about a month ago published uh, two position papers on AI in uh, manufacturing and also drug development, and they're seeking the community's input on that. 
So going back to what I was saying about, for example, AIH being an organization that is focused on developing consensus. And I think today, building consensus around these themes that can be communicated to regulators is one of the most important things that we can all do because regulatory agencies, especially the FDA, they don't want to make necessarily top-down decisions that can have unintended consequences and be barriers to innovation. So that means that it's the onus is on us, the community of investors, drug developers, and technology developers and innovators to form, develop community consensus around themes that are important to advancing these tools and communicate that consensus through appropriate channels with regulatory authorities. This is a window of opportunity that will not last that long, but it is an opportunity that we all have today. Yeah, I'm going to hop in here as usual. And one of the key things that I've heard over and over on this podcast as I've been interviewing some of these leaders, and the feedback has been, FDA is your friend. To your point, it's a collaborative organization that is, you know, the interest is to keep the patients and consumers safe, right? And so collaboration is one of the key components to their function. Because this is a DTX podcast, would love to hear your thoughts, things like other digital therapeutic manufacturers that are already part of the Alliance of Artificial Intelligence. What can some of the digital therapeutic manufacturers, companies, entrepreneurs take out of our discussion today? Any hints or suggestions to those digital therapeutic trailblazers? The best way that I can encapsulate this is for innovators in this space to think about validation. And, you know, I think um, companies in this domain, you know, I think they have a pretty good idea of how to analytically and technically validate their tools. You know, they have um, control over that software development cycle and product development cycle. But, you know, I think where things get complicated is the clinical validation aspect where, you know, there are a lot of open questions. You know, how do you if you have a digital therapeutic that is robust from a technical standpoint, then what do you need to show in order to put that digital therapeutic in the hands of individuals or patients or clinicians as prescribers of these tools? And that really is a function of validating that tool clinically. So traditionally, the way we validate the performance of a technology or a tool or even a drug is through conducting prospective clinical trials. And the randomized clinical trial standard is the gold standard. But nowadays we have other options. You know, we can start to think about deploying these tools and putting them in the context of controlled pilots in the hands of clinicians or patients, if it's a direct-to-consumer device, and then collecting real-world data as part of clinical validation of these tools because that's not only required for the regulatory approval of these devices and these tools, but also payers are now increasingly looking at the data that's generated as part of clinical validation to make their coverage decisions. There's nothing worse than having a technology, a digital therapeutic, for example, that can help patients, and then it becomes a bottleneck when it comes to reimbursement. And typically, that based on what I've seen, is a direct byproduct of the fact that not enough effort went into proving the clinical utility of the tool during the development uh, cycle. And I think that is uh, something that obviously is embedded within how we develop drugs. 
traditional drugs, but we need to start to extrapolate from those existing standards that we have in how we develop traditional therapeutics to validating the clinical benefit and also the clinical utility of these tools in the real world. Yeah, and I think that's been part of the challenge for DTX entrepreneurs, right? Because you held up to kind of the pharma molecular style on one side of development and then the medical device side. So software that moves quick and changes quick has been sort of stuck in between a bit, right? So let's see how that develops over time. Sean, I know you're not directly in the digital therapeutic space, but I know because we kind of chatted that you're keeping an eye on the field and the industry Obviously, the ones that are keeping an eye, there have been some failures around it, or let's reverse it. There's been a lot of lessons learned from previous trailblazers that were on the scene. Your quick thoughts on what can the industry learn from the experiences of others? Sure. That's a great question. I think what some of the recent failures tell us is that developing robust uh, technology is not enough. It is necessary, obviously, to have a digital therapeutic that is technologically robust, but it's not sufficient. And securing reimbursement for these tools, I think, is of critical importance. And it's something that folks developing these tools have to be thinking about on day one. And there are lessons to be learned in the world of drug development and the early days of diagnostics. An example is Oncotype DX, for example, which is a diagnostic tool that is based on the molecular profile of patients with early stage breast cancer. And the way this was validated to secure reimbursement was quite interesting and independent, in fact, from the regulatory path that the developers of this tool early on invested a lot in showing the clinical utility and clinical benefit of the approach of the diagnostic approach in improving health outcomes patients with uh, breast cancer. And then they uh, went to every conference, you know, oncology conference, and met with uh, clinicians on the ground and started to show the data and talk about the data to the point that Oncotype DX started to find its way into guidelines and guideline recommendations. When that happens, regardless of the regulatory path, it would be very hard to payers not to provide reimbursement for those uh, tools. So I think the lessons that we have learned uh, over the past uh, couple of decades in bringing new diagnostics and new drugs that are targeted, for example, to specific uh, genomic aberration can be extrapolated to how to make sure that digital therapeutics are appropriately reimbursed by insurers. Thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. I think we can keep going deeper and deeper into almost all the sub-verticals. But, you know, we started with you and uh, let's finish with you, Sean. What makes you get up in the morning? That's a great question. You know, I think I've been blessed because I have been fortunate to be in situations professionally where I'm doing things that I love to do. So I sometimes think about the fact that I probably haven't even worked a day in my life because what I do is what I truly enjoy. And it's a part of the fabric of who I am. And I'm always excited to just get up in the morning and finish what I had started uh, the previous day. Because again, it's a sort of just, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be in a position where what I do professionally is what I truly enjoy personally. And now if you can do that on your own plane while flying it, so we'll have to all talk to your wife about this. 
<laughs> I appreciate you responding so quickly. I appreciate you jumping on to record this. It was great to reconnect, Sean, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Eugene. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.